The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I think I've said that already. And you are... <laughs> Maybe I should do this as a script. Go ahead and say your name out loud. I'm Jack Wilson, the host of the show. And you are... Did you say your name out loud? Actually say it out loud? I kind of hope you did. I hope you said it loudly and with pride and with gusto, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. No matter where you are, the exercise bike, the laundry room, sitting in the coffee shop, lying in bed, say your name like you've just climbed a mountain, and it's time for the universe to hear that you are here. I'm Jack Wilson, and you are... Okay, okay, that's loud enough. (laughs) Pipe down, weirdo. So, we have a great show today, a fun one. We're headed back to the Cold War with the U.S. versus the mighty USSR. This was my childhood, folks, and it dominated the thinking of those of us in America. Are we Athens? Are they Sparta? What's going on here? Freedom versus totalitarianism? It dominated world geopolitics as well, but it was essential to our definition in America of who we were and who we wanted to be. We were on the side of freedom and democracy. And in some ways, that self-conception, having that empire in opposition, held our feet to the fire. Fear of embarrassment, of being accused of hypocrisy. We were the ones who didn't spy on your citizens, who didn't rig elections, who treated everyone as equal. Oh, crap, we're not doing that? Well, we'd better fix it. That's how things were in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Oh, we better fix this. Our image around the world demands it. We're trying to win hearts and minds. And then the Soviet Union collapsed, and we in America were left shadowboxing against ourselves. And it has not gone well. It has not gone well at all. We've had some good moments, but... Man, we have really gone off a cliff now, haven't we? Without the Soviet Union to define ourselves against, we have only had ourselves. We could only turn inward, and what we've done with that has been, in my view, what we've done with that is to give in to greed and pettiness and false idol after false idol. We are paying the price. But, That is not what this show is about. This show, this episode, is about literature. Mike Palindrome is here. He's going to, well, (laughs) you know what? He's licking his wounds a little bit. Someone on Twitter mentioned that, leave Mike alone, said the tweet. He's still recovering from the beating he took in England versus France. England versus France, that episode. What an ignominious moment that was for poor Mike. The president of the Literature Supporters Club reduced to feebly mumbling that Shakespeare was a hack. Shakespeare! 
I won that one with my very first pick. I didn't even have to roll out my Dr. Johnson story about the dictionary. But I'll give it to you now. So, Dr. Johnson had this idea that he would write a dictionary of the English language. This was the 18th century, and there was no dictionary in English. There was no English dictionary. Didn't exist. Everyone saw the need, and Johnson stepped up. Okay, fine. I'll do it. Do you know how hard it is to write a dictionary? (laughs) My son is pretty good at defining words. I'm always impressed when he nails one perfectly. But to do that over and over and over, for word after word after word, all by yourself, every word, a dictionary from scratch, Johnson estimated that it would take him three years. Three years. Actually, there's so many good stories about this dictionary, and I think I'm going to save it. We'll do an episode on it. But I'll tell you this one. Johnson said he could do a dictionary in three years. Someone said, well, in France, you know, they wrote a dictionary of the French language, and it took 40 academics 40 years to finish it. And Johnson said, sir, thus it is. This is the proportion. Let me see. 40 times 40 is 1,600. As 3 to 1,600, so is the proportion of an Englishman to a Frenchman. What a great story. This is going on the list. Johnson's Dictionary. That will be a fun episode. So that's the spirit in which I trounced Mike with my Shakespeare-led forces. Not much of a contest. So we plan to rematch another literary battle royale, taking different sides. And Mike jumped in. I'll take Russia. (laughs) We'll do the Cold War. I'll take Russia. Wow. He's got centuries of literature behind him and some obvious titans. And he knows my weakness for the Russians. Chekhov is, I don't even know what to compare Chekhov with. Sometimes I can't even think about Chekhov. I love him so much. It's painful. So here's Mike loading up. And yet, I think I pulled it out. I got scrappy. I looked under a few rocks. I looked in some dark corners. I harnessed some unusual arguments. In the end, I think I won with the fifth pick, but it was breathtakingly close. America versus Russia. You will hear that soon. But first, let's listen to some emails. Uh, Excuse me. There's someone at the door here. Oh, who is it? It looks like an angel, a forbidding angel. Hello, Hello, I'm Emily Dickinson. Emily. I've written a poem in honor of that impudent scallywag, Jack Wilson. Oh, a poem? Here Let's it hear is. It. Yes. My life has stood, a loaded gun, in corners till today. Hmm. I listened to his podcast and sent him some money. Oh. Won't you please support the cause of literature and the arts? Oh, Emily. That is such a beautiful gesture. I'm so appreciative of your generosity, Emily. I'll even overlook the little impudent scalawag crack. Emily, hello. What a good American. Signing up for the team. Is that why you're here today, Emily? Ready to take on those Ruskies? Thank you, Emily, for that original poem. My goodness, a little bit heavy on the marketing now, aren't we? 
Well, it is for literature and the arts, which is a good cause. It's not a beer commercial, although if any beer... Let me just say it here and now. If you own a beer company and you put Emily Dickinson on one of your ads, I will buy your beer for life. The closest I've come to that is Edgar Allan Poe, a beer I drink regularly. They make it out of Baltimore. It's in stores here in my neck of the woods. Can you get that where you are? Telltale Ale, Raven Lager, Annabelle Lee White, Dark Usher. It's really good stuff. And the drawings of Edgar on the bottle never fail to make me smile. You get a lot of my money by doing things like this. Corporate people. Maybe those models in bikinis work on some guys, all ye beer makers, but not this guy. Give me Edgar and Emily and watch my wallet spring open and my credit card float out like a ghost looking for its body. Speaking of credit cards, you can sign up to help the show over there at patreon.com slash literature, a buck a month, a fiver here and there, whatever you can afford, just enough to buy me a beer or a coffee or whatever you like to drink. I'm flexible. Or you can think of it as paying for the books that I buy to help prepare for these shows. Or if you're of a more technical mind, the expenditures I have to put these things out well or just a drink. Imagine we're in a nice place enjoying each other's company. We each get a drink and you decide to pick up the tab. We do that once a month. That's the spirit. Or maybe we're at the bookstore. You see me pulling something good off the shelf and you say to the clerk, hey, I know this guy. I got this one. That's what we're going for here. Friendly donations, little tips of the cap, a coin or two pressed in my hand. My grimy little hand. <laughs> like the generous donations of new patrons like listener Susanna and listeners Michael, Mary, and Nick. Thank you for signing up, and thanks to all the Patreons. Guess what? We'll be posting a new special bonus episode on Patreon for current subscribers. A little mini-sode. Prison literature. Perfect for the quarantine. So go ahead and enjoy yourselves with that. And if you're not a recurring payment kind of person feel free to stop by historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can donate by buying me a virtual coffee or two. Let's take a quick break, come back with some listener emails, and then bring on Mike Palindrome to dive into our battle royale. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, 
Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first up, a message from Susanna. Dear Jack, just signed up to your podcast. Hello from the high country of the Barossa Valley in South Australia. I love listening to your podcast when I am sitting on my potter's wheel, struggling to get orders fulfilled, making the 102nd cup of the order for 300, then imagining people using that cup for their morning coffee. The joy of being creative. I love the depth you go in, you go to in the writers' lives. It makes so much more sense when you read what they have written afterwards. Keep up the good work, and don't be so hard on yourself. I am running out of tissues. You make me cry so much. <laughs> Susanna. Well, <laughs> Susanna. Oh, I'm sorry. But thank you for your kind message and your generosity. An order for 300 handmade cups, and you're on number 102. Wow. That is really something. What a life you're leading. We need to incorporate this into our world tour, I think. Maybe we'll swing by the Barossa Valley to say hello, or maybe we'll buy some cups to ship to the south of France on our way there to stay with our special listener who's invited us all to his vineyard. We can't only drink wine. We'll have to have some coffee, too. This tour is really shaping up. We're stopping at William Trevor's house, too, I think, in Ireland. It's going to be the wildest literary tour ever. <laughs> we'll visit that postal worker in Sweden and fly down to Africa to see one of the libraries that the African Library Project has created and maybe go visit our Brazilian friend and maybe back to Mongolia where that backpacker was trekking to make sure she's okay. We have our friend in Hong Kong who slows down the speed of the podcast to make sure she can keep up with the English. And who else? We've had a bunch of good stops, haven't we? This has been a great journey. Okay, next email is from Desmond. Subject, possible subject. Jack, I love the podcast, and after a few listens a couple years ago, I'm currently binging it. Who am I to make any suggestions to your podcast? Not only is it fine how it is, but it seems that you don't need my penny-any suggestions. But I have to ask, would you ever consider talking about Ron Chernow? He doesn't write novels, but his biographies sure do read like them. I've read the three most recent of his books, and they are all huge, and plan to read his older works. He's just such a good writer to me that I had to ask. Anyway, great show. I'll continue to listen regardless, being a reader myself. Best, Desmond. Thank you, Desmond. A very interesting suggestion. I do like biographies myself. I like those stories when they're well-written and when I'm interested in the people. Well, wait, <laughs> what did I just say? I like biographies when they're well-written and when I'm interested in the people. Is that the dumbest thing I've ever said on this show? I mean, really, the most vapid thing I've ever said. It might be. I'll probably get a million emails of, People reminding me of things I've said that are dumber, mistakes I've made, errors, lousy opinions, but I don't think I've ever been that vapid. Biographies? 
Yes, I like them when they are A, well-written, and B, about people who interest me. What a hot take. (laughs) What an incisive thing to say. How about you, dear listener? Do you like biographies? No? Sometimes? Well, do you like them when they are, number one, well-written, and number two, about people who interest you? That's the kind of trenchant literary analysis that has kept me in clover. That's why I'm just rolling in the dough. Good Lord. That is exactly the kind of thing I try so hard not to say here on this show. (laughs) I can't even imagine what's comparable. Hmm, Tolstoy. He was a Russian author who lived in the 19th century. Wrote War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Good novels, long My goodness, who are you to make suggestions to my podcast, Desmond? That's a nice thing to say. We can start there, can't we? How about you say something about biographies that is not totally inane, Jack? That's a suggestion you might make. How about that? How about not saying you like them when they are A, well-written, and B, about interesting people? (laughs) I like books, too, when they are, one, written well, and two, about things that interest me. Oh, imagine a food critic. Hi, everyone. This is Jack Wilson, your guide to the world's greatest kitchens. Let me begin by telling you my criteria. I like restaurants that, one, serve good food, and two, offer a nice atmosphere. Controversial, I know, but hey, it's not easy coming up with this aesthetic approach. So that's my take on biographies. Written well about interesting people. Wow. Wow, that might be rock bottom. Come on, Jack. Get it together. Okay. So Desmond, I haven't thought about Ron Chernow books, but now that you mention it, I might reach out to see if he wants to come on the show. Although hopefully he isn't listening at the moment since my pants just fell down, metaphorically, when I gave my impromptu Aesthetic framework for analyzing biographies. What I would like to do is to talk about biographies and the art of biography and any examples he has of biographies that have been particularly important to him. More questions, too, but I'll save those for Mr. Chernow. One more quick email, and then we'll start the war. Here's one from Daniel. Subject, C.S. Lewis. Hi, Jack. I've been super busy with work and therefore a little behind with your podcasts. Just listened to the C.S. Lewis show last night. My compliments. I thought it was a high point in your entire series. You obviously disagreed with Lewis's journey into Christianity, but you did the show anyway. You are to be praised for that. And you did not sidestep Lewis's beliefs. Rather, you looked them straight in the eye and tackled them. Tackled them somehow in honest yet delicate and thoughtful manner, so as not to offend any listener of any belief. I was amazed at your success. I'll keep my own beliefs to myself, as they are not important here. What's important is that your words last night pierced me, as usual, in a way that made me think. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. I think we're doing okay here at the History of Literature podcast. Sometimes we strike that balance. We always try to, anyway, to be respectful and incisive, to give opinions, but to uh, accommodate the opinions of others. 
And sometimes we say things that are so obviously offensive, the backlash is enormous. I'll give you an example. How we're not afraid to be controversial. Today, I said that biographies are good when they are A, well-written, and B, about subjects that are interesting to the reader. I think you'll agree that is truly beyond the pale. I'm sure there are people right now who are throwing their headphones at the wall and screaming, Jack Wilson, you fool! That has nothing to do with the quality of a biography. Don't you know that the best biographies are those that are poorly written about completely uninteresting people? You monstrous fool. I hate you, Jack Wilson. This time, you have gone too far. And I'll say, Daniel likes the C.S. Lewis episode. About the biography, I will have no defense. I took a risk, and it did not pay off. Next time, I'll try to say something a little less controversial. Ah, where are we? Okay, Mike Palindrome. Here we go. (laughs) Literary Battle Royale. We're already there. (laughs) That was fast. Okay, Mike Palindrome for our Cold War Literary Battle Royale. U.S. versus USSR. After this, Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the Generalissimo of the Literature Supporters Club, here for another Battle Royale. This time we're fighting... (laughs) Wait! (laughs) You jumped the gun! This time we're fighting the literary version of the Cold War, the USA versus the USSR. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, so I said the USSR. You're you're eager for this one. I said the USSR, <laughs> but actually, you said you'd limit yourself to Mother Russia. Is that right? Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if you don't gotta, want to, I've got to use. I got to use Ukraine. Okay. Okay. Well, that seems. I was thinking more like the, uh, you oh, know, like Czechoslovakia. And, yeah. Uh, like if oh, you I had Kafka in there, that would feel like a, a yeah. bit of a stretch. So. Well, you know, I wanted to lay down some ground rules. Like who who gets to use Nabokov? Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll Maybe see. Either. I was so, thinking neither. Yeah. So the other ground rule, and I have to say, <laughs> even though. Uh, I was doing some scouting of your side, and I very quickly got to five Russian generals, and I thought I would have my work cut out for me. Uh-huh. I have to say that if we're doing the Cold War, I don't think you're going to pick anyone who's actually from the Cold War. That, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. if we're actually talking about the period of the Cold War, it was not a great period for Russian writers, uh, other than maybe Boris Pasternak, uh, who we have uh, coming up. There's a new uh, book based on. Pasternak's life story that uh, I'm going to be talking to the author of that book. It is very interesting, but pretty down period for uh, writers and culture during the actual uh, Cold War. Yeah, you only have to read Nabokov's lectures on Russian literature to see what he thought of the Soviet era. And, you know, if you read a little bit about the surrealist poet Mayakovsky, who's Mm. not uh, not one of my generals, but you know, his um, his efforts, his valiant efforts to write to appease the Soviet 
censors and then you know his rebellion and eventual suicide yeah it's it's not a pretty period so i think a lot of my writers would have been on your side (laughs) yeah (laughs) and the other disadvantage that i'm at is that you're in the middle of a tolstoy together readathon which i've been following on twitter so you're immersed in the world of Prince Andre and Pierre and Natasha and hundreds of pages of historiography. So advantage, Mr. Palindrome. I can't believe I almost thought of not doing this book club. And so <laughs> if, if, if listeners out there uh, don't know about this, it's the, there's a literary journal in Brooklyn called A Public Space. It's basically the, the staff of the public, the Paris Review that defected. Mm. Uh, probably about five or five or six years ago. And they are going to continue this book club once War and Peace ends. We're on page 1100. So we have a couple, we have 200 pages to go. And this summer they're going, they're going to read five short novels, mm. including one by Mavis Gallant that mm. mm-hmm. I, I recommend, uh, and Giovanni's Room by Baldwin. So, And it, they read like 10 or 15 pages a day? Yeah, it's great. It's people get on Twitter and the range of commentary is very amusing. You have yeah. academics, you have people posting gifts of characters' reactions. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking yeah. of Twitter, I was checking the Literature SC account the other day, which is where you tweet, and I noticed something that I wanted to ask you about. So when you started this account, You were so excited. You announced it on the show because you were going to recommend a book a day for 10 years. Do you remember that? (laughs) And I I teased you because it seems so ambitious to to announce 10 years. And and then you'd get to to day 50 and you'd be celebrating. And I'd say, great, only 3,600 more days to go. And you remember that? So I was wondering if you had kept that up. So I go over to the Twitter account and I see the description of Literature SC, and it says, <laughs> every day, we used to recommend one literary novel a day. <laughs> Mike, you changed the description from every day we recommend one literary novel a day to every day we used to recommend, which must be the laziest thing I've ever seen. What good is that description doing anyone to tell them that you used to recommend a literary novel a day? <laughs> well, well, one of my literary followers mailed me started said, complaining yeah said, why, don't, why don't you recommend any more books and i said and he he cited the uh the motto and so i said I, I said check tomorrow and i changed the motto change the motto yeah oh right instead of cranking up the recommendations yeah. again just change the motto but, okay you know, i i think what I, I i started to write actually you know a bit seriously that the value of rereading books and the value of trying to remember why you like a book and having some justification to recommending a book. Cause you know, I just hate it when someone recommends a book to me and they can't say two things about it. Mm. Um, so, yeah. but then I, I, I bailed. And went <laughs> the easy joke. Okay. Well, we'll see how you do tonight. You can see I'm aggressive. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to challenge you. I feel like I'm a bit of an underdog here because Russian literature, especially because of the way we're picking it uh, yeah. with these five great generals, basically. Um, my work is cut out for me, so we'll see how I do. So I'll let you go first. Who are you taking as your general of generals for your Russian army? Well, I'm just going to pick Tolstoy. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's, uh, 
And I'll just say that, you know, I agree you guys are the underdog and you've only been around for 250 years yeah, uh, or so. And But I think that if, you know, 2,000 years from now, America will not have produced a novelist like Tolstoy. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, Tolstoy is basically everything that James Wood or Nabokov or George Lukash or any serious literary critic admires about literature, you know, Tolstoy has it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's just so much that you can say about him, but, uh, you know, as part of the War and Peace book club, I've been just so amazed by the the battle scenes. Mm, yeah. And, and A.S. Baya, A.S. Baya has a really great description. She says that his descriptions of battlefields has the right amount of idiosyncrasy and detail. Mm, yeah. And, it, you know, like, for instance, one of the generals, Kutukov, he, um, when he has downtime, he reads a French novel. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, people make porridge and set fire to homes by accident. Yeah. Apparently, porridge making was very dangerous. You would just inadvertently set fire to the house. Yeah. When you were making, when soldiers were making porridge. I mean, it's just... <laughs> They're just you, you, there's so many great details, um, but to put it into a sweeping story about the Napoleonic Wars yeah. and social circles in St. Petersburg versus Moscow, ah, uh, it's just it, it's definitely one of these books you can read every year and get something new out of it. Well, and it's so like when you try to talk about why Tolstoy is great and. You know, if you're talking about a writer like Flaubert or Chekhov or someone, you, you might be talking about their their description or how the observant they are or the way they convey a character or something. And Nabokov said something that always stuck with me when he was talking about Tolstoy. And he said the the strength he has that is is impossible to replicate and that other authors, it's not something you can just learn and do is his the way he is able to convey time the passage of time and it's yeah. almost it, it is kind of like you'd almost have to look at a movie director is is maybe more likely someone who can get the the pace of a battle or just to make you feel like you're in the right um you know you're moving along with the story and with what you're seeing but it's it's like he's he's got the perfect pacing um, I don't know how exactly to describe it or to put my finger on it, but it, it does give you this different experience when you're reading than a lot of other fiction does. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Hemingway says, I'm going to use this throughout, you use some of these Americans against you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, how do you write a novel? He was struggling with this because he had spent six years perfecting the short story. Yeah. Saying, how do you write a novel? Because you can't hold it in your head. And th I thought immediately, right. you know, Tolstoy, War and Peace reads like he held it entirely in his head. Like it was all in his head. That's right. And yeah. when you read Hemingway's novels, they feel a little stitched together. Like he had a story and then another story and then another story. And it ends up being a little bit uneven, a little bit ragged. I think that's much more common that novels read like that than yeah. uh, that they read like Tolstoy. 
Yeah, you could use Faulkner against me as well for his, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, what are your three fra- favorite novels? Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina. Um, so I will uh, only point out um, that Tolstoy could not stand Shakespeare. And that suggests to me that he is a man with blind spots, which is not great for a general. He'll He'll move in one direction thinking he's winning and then he'll realize he's overcommitted his army and now he's stuck. He was a little bit like that in life. He would stake out a position. I mean, at his best, he works that into the novels and he puts it in the characters. But he, he I don't know if he'd be a great general. He might, uh, you know, run into uh, a battle against an overwhelming force and not realize that he's he's not as equipped as he thought he would. So He actually knew a, a fair bit about uh, battle strategy. That's true. Yeah. War, so I, I, I think he, <laughs> he was the only one of my generals who would who would be able to actually, you know. Here's the other thing, know. though. It's not going to be, you know, this isn't the Cold War where it's two sides who are huge superpowers and they're they've got their nukes pointed at each other. I yeah. realize I'm outgunned, so I'm going to take to the you know the great tradition of taking to the forest, like the Revolutionary War soldiers, where I'm. I'm fighting from the trees instead of neat formations, and and Tolstoy mm-hmm. is such a giant dinosaur. He might be a uh, he might be ripe for my attack. Okay, so I am going to take my first pick, and here's where I am going to jump in and take Nabokov. I think it's fair to take him <laughs> for the American side uh, mm-hmm. because he was basically ousted from Russia by the very uh, Bolsheviks who are we're talking about here in the Cold War. Um, he yeah. came to America. He fell in love with it. Um, and I, I'm taking him as number one because he's the spy. He's the intelligence agent. Only he can travel in both realms of these of these literary giants with perfect knowledge. So your army is going to be stuck with Russian, maybe a little French, and but with Nabokov, I can infiltrate your ranks. Um, he's a great writer. He's a great thinker about literature. Uh, Lolita is the one that everybody sort of reads and knows, but I have a there's a lot of Nabokov books that I really love. Uh, I've probably read about 20, I think, but uh, there's probably maybe five or six that are among my favorite novels. Pale Fire is one of my favorites. Penin, Speak Memory, I love. Ben Sinister, Glory. And then I go back often to his lectures on Russian and English literature. So he's a, a person of letters. He's a sharp critic and good luck trying to out-strategize him. He's He's going to be playing chess with the... Uh, you know, with the battlefield, he'll see all the pieces and know all the moves. I'm filing a complaint. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I feel like Russian literature is such a juggernaut. You can have Nabokov. You can give him to me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Tolstoy wrote, wrote two of the greatest novels ever. It's just like, it's just sick. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I mean, and my number two is Dostoevsky. Yeah, like, uh, I figured. It's just kind of like, you know, if Tolstoy is about history, Dostoevsky is about this unique, singular philosophical voice. It's, you know, it's the perfect marriage of philosophy and character and fiction, mm. mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you know, The Brothers Karamazov is one of these books that you can, I, I always joke that, you know, books are better than people. But Brothers Karamazov actually makes that case. You can you can live inside this book almost. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and this is where, you know, Faulkner, Hemingway, I mean, they are indebted to Dostoevsky. Yeah. You know, they, they kind of gave him, they, they, they give, he gave writers the courage to, you know, create worlds that were maybe beyond their, their abilities. Yeah. You can imagine if Dostoevsky hadn't existed, that people would be reading Tolstoy and they'd be thinking, okay, this is great. It's, it's regal. It's, uh, you know, the omniscient narrator here. And then the narration is, is so august. We could aspire to that, but wouldn't it be interesting to just go really deep into some of these people and explore kind of the, the seamy underbelly. And, and it's like, well, Dostoevsky did that. You know, you've you've already got an example of someone who did that supremely well. Yeah, I mean, the only knock against Dostoevsky to be, you know, to 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 even show a few chinks in the armor, and because I I just know that I'm going to win, <laughs> is, is that I think he's better read in your twenties. Mm. I think there's something about Dostoevsky that um, at the time it was very. Uh, very much full of rage and rebellion. Mm-hmm. And there's something about him that in middle age, you know, I, I, I have to say, I don't, I don't reach for him that yeah. often. I get a little impatient yeah. with him sometimes that I feel like, uh, you know, he's 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 giving in to some of his own personal failings, which um, I like. You know, that makes it's part of what gives his books energy and makes them so fascinating. But it can also be sometimes uh, it can go on too long or you can you can spend a lot of time waiting for uh, the character to get the point that the author is trying to get to. He's almost like a high school, a perfect high school, college Mm. uh, author. But yeah, I mean, it's it's sometimes I. Personally, you know, if I'm going to read philosophy, I'd rather read Foucault. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or Kierkegaard or, you know. Yeah. Uh, and if, I, if I'm going to read literature, you know, I, I prefer Tolstoy. So, but I, I do think that and part of my selections, you know, speak to the influence and enduring impact of Russian literature. And mm. I think... Yeah. It's so widespread. I think, you know, it. It you can't you you can't ignore it. I mean, it's right. You know, it, any person who's interested in literature at some point goes through a Russian phase. Yeah, it's kind of like Bach and Mozart and Beethoven or something. You're if you're talking about classical music, yeah, just these figures that are inescapable. And Tolstoy and Dostoevsky are certainly uh, on that list. Yeah, I mean, you got you. I think you should capitulate. <laughs> and I'm not sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, I, I will say I'm interested to hear your picks because, yeah. uh, you know, I love American literature. And I think, yeah. you know, for what they've produced in 250 years, it's it's unique and original. Yeah. Just small fry, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. We've got you've got to get to five. And Dostoevsky, you know, again, as a as a as someone that you're asking to head into battle here, I'll just hold up a cross and he'll probably back down, trembling like a ninny, uh, lost and uncertain, ashamed, afraid to take me on, paralyzed by guilt, or or I could throw a few dice on the ground and watch him spend all night gambling until he's so in debt my to my spies he'll have to throw the battle. 
Yeah, I mean, if you all those point to the fact that his life was probably one of the most fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. Lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I will uh, take my number two, and I feel like this is just to kind of staunch the bleeding here. <laughs> Uh, where I'm going to take Saul Bellow. He's the American Tolstoy, only he has more humor than Tolstoy and a more energetic prose style, which makes him more interesting. He's he's not an aristocrat like Count Tolstoy. He's a street fighter. He's Jewish and immigrant. He's tough. He's prickly. He's the kind of general who will do what it takes. So he'll uh, he'll push his soldiers into formation, just like he marshals words into the sentences, getting the most out of their talents. Uh, and be honest, you reach for Saul Bellow more than you reach for Tolstoy. <laughs> Going for the personal, <laughs> you know, jugular. Uh, you know, here's one thing I thought from time to time, is that if Bellow had written in, say, French, or German, whether mm-hmm. we would we would think of him as even more intellectual. Mm. I think there's something about him that people find him playful and you know yeah. really capturing the American spirit, but they lose sight of how intellectual he was. Yeah, I mean he was basically like you know an academic. I mean he you know a, a historian. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I'm a big Bellow fan, so yeah, I'll just, I'll just ignore your question <laughs> and move <laughs> move on to my number three, which is my attack, my weapon to attack your idea that American writers are more fun, mm-hmm. uh, which is Gogol. Oh yeah, and, you know, and I I, I yeah. think you know three his for three. Short stories is yep. uh, the the playfulness of Dead Souls. Mm-hmm. I mean. And he's early. That's the thing. Oh, you'd, you'd think so much he, fun. You'd think that he came after all of these people, that he had figured it out. Instead, he was like, he was doing what he was doing as a pioneer. Uh, it's amazing how much he's able to get out of his short stories. He really was a genius. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I reached for Google more than Tolstoy mm. or Dostoevsky. I mean, it's you know, I read The Overcoat probably mm. once a year. Yeah. Um I I love these oh, lines in the a... overcoat where he he's just thinking about the overcoat, talking about the overcoat, and he goes, All these thoughts about his new overcoat nearly took his mind off his work at the office, so much so that once as he was copying out a document, he was about to make a mistake and he almost cried out, Oh dear, in a loud voice and crossed himself. Yeah. <laughs> and and then and then he goes on and says, He went to see his friend Petrovic at least once a month to discuss his overcoat. <laughs> I know. That is such a good story. I I was I was kind of trying to come up with some way to take Gogol down and I just couldn't I couldn't bring myself to it. I wrote a little note here that said maybe he's a supply clerk and not a general, but my heart wasn't <laughs> in it. <laughs> and your own your own general Nabokov called him the greatest writer Russia yeah. ever produced. Yep. So. He did. Okay. That's another, that's a good one. I'd say you are three for three, but where the uh, the race may not be, might be to the uh, steady and not to the swift. <laughs> I'll take my number three. Again, I'm trying to staunch the bleeding and just come up with people who cannot be laughed off the stage with these guys. And so I'll take Herman Melville, who, you know, he is a big novelist, 
writing big books. He's got a kind of weirdness to him, a wildness. He's got the the visionary. Uh, Bartleby is up there with Notes from Underground as far as influential shorter works. And Moby Dick, it, it can be in the conversation of these great novels. He's got the whole power of nature on his side. He's he's so good at bad weather and storms and, and uh, you know, just the whole, the biblical fury of Moby Dick and Ahab. It's a great book. It's a great novel. Uh, he's kind of my wild card general, the one that, uh, that you roll out when you want to win the unwinnable battles, that he's just fearless and, and uh, he'll just bring a kind of, unmatched rhetorical fury that will uh will help carry the day i mean i love moby dick and i think you know of your three generals he's probably the most original Mm -hmm. you know to set setting out to write a long novel about a whale yeah (laughs) (laughs) and include all of the the passages about whales and whaling in it you know almost like a it's also like an encyclopedia of whaling it's a very uh, interesting move for a 19th century author to take. With four, I, I have to, I, I wanted to mix it up, either do a playwright or a poet. So I picked Chekhov, mm-hmm. although Chekhov, you know, has quite a number of exceptional short stories. But, you know, I love his plays. I think, you know, Seagull, Three Sisters, Cherry Orchard. I think the the emotion, the pure emotion in these plays and the the density of dialogue, I mean, hugely influential, Joyce, Hemingway, Tennessee Williams. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a more influential playwright than Chekhov. Yeah, and I love the short stories. I mean, everybody imitates Chekhov. Everybody, he's sort of the the model, even more than Gogol, I think. I know Gogol is, you know, there's a famous line about um, everyone came out of Gogol's overcoat. But mm-hmm. uh, Chekhov is the one that everyone looks at. But the, the thing is, they haven't surpassed him. All of yeah. these great writers, Alice Munro and Raymond Carver, and all these people you know are looking at Chekhov to see how it's done. And even so, he's got, uh, there's there's just that magic in his short stories that it still feels fresh to me, and it still goes straight to my soul. I'm just going to say, you know, he is not a general in any sense of the word. He's a medic. And if you want to put a doctor in charge of your army, fine. But my guess is he would find a peaceful alternative to the war that everyone else, you know, nods their head and thinks, yes, that wouldn't that be a nice dream? And and instead, it's impossible to achieve. And then poor Chekhov will go cough his lungs out and die. (laughs) Sounds like a Chekhov play. (laughs) The general who finally meets his maker. Okay, well, I am going to stake out some interesting territory here, uh-huh. which is, uh, and I'm I still, I, I, I acknowledge that you're four for four, but I think my next two <laughs> picks are going to make things kind of interesting here because of what they represent. I'm going to take Emily Dickinson as my number four, mm-hmm. and I think an entire gender is going to be mine. 
Uh, I'd be surprised if you take even one woman with your five picks. And I think I win the whole field of poetry with this, uh, unless there's there's one you might take, but I'll have some thoughts about that. Dickinson is a secret weapon. You know, you could have Hemingway and you could have other kind of, um, you know, more clamorous authors out there, out front on, out in front of the army on a horse and marching around with their manly bravado. But Emily Dickinson is someone to be in charge. She's smart as hell. She's an independent thinker, very strong, and just weird enough to be thinking outside the box. So she's going to be the one to think up the Trojan horse or using hot air balloons for reconnaissance or attacking on Christmas Eve when the Russians are drunk. So General Emily Dickinson... I'm uh, proud to have her on the battlefield. I think the troops will enjoy marching behind her into the field of battle. You know, <laughs> I'm a big, big Dickinson fan. So it's interesting that I mean, I, I I read mostly American literature. I have to say, you know, mm-hmm. and I love all your picks. So yeah, you know, I would counter with Pushkin. But yeah. I haven't, I, I confess, I haven't read Eugene Onegin. Well, that's the thing about so. Pushkin. I was ready if you were going to bring yeah. out Pushkin because he is like, like the Russians will say he's the best. That he, yeah. they'd take him over Tolstoy. But my understanding is, and this is a lot of this is from Nabokov, is he just cannot be read in translation. Mm. Um, it just doesn't, it's impossible to translate him, which is, makes it interesting for an English reader, someone who doesn't read Russian, because you read about Pushkin and all of these Russian writers that I respect have such reverence for Pushkin, but I've never read Pushkin in a way that made me, you know, kind of more than scratch my head and, and wonder what all the fuss was about. And I, and, uh, you know, I believe people who say it's because he's impossible to really, capture in another language yeah and then i also thought of taking mayakovsky mm-hmm. but I, I feel like my love of cloud and trousers and the bed bug is a bit irrational <laughs> so, it's like my love of uh, paul salon's poetry <laughs> um so I, I think i have to go with turgenev yeah though i haven't read I figured him you would in years but you know when i did read him i i loved like everybody, Bazarov, the the nihilist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. he only believes in frogs. <laughs> <laughs> like everything else is, you know, <laughs> um, subject to criticism and um, a real attack on conformity and the past. And I think I was probably going through my own breaking away from my father. Mm. And I just like the idea of attacking everything across the playing field. Yeah. But but with some kind of justification. Yeah. I think it's one of these books that speaks to how Russian literature is so much a part of Russian philosophy and Russian uh thinking mm-hmm. in a way that you know, America has all this freedom, but it almost has too much freedom. I think Dave Foster Wallace, who I know you love, talks about the the limits of freedom. Mhm. And the limits of um, not having more rules and strictures that force you into perhaps deeper thought and some kind of like superficial thinking that comes from freedom. Yeah. So I I just don't think that there's an American writer with the kind of social weight that Turgenev has. Mm. 
That's interesting. I was going to say that your fifth pick shows just how thin your ranks really are. That you're, <laughs> he's fifth. I thought you might take Bulgakov, uh, but it was between those two. And as I was scouting your army here, it's it's a pretty weak flank, Mike. Turgenev <laughs> is like perennially unloved. He's undiscovered. He's he may be great, and and people may say, "Oh, I like him even better than Tolstoy." Or, but he's really uh, he's just sort of a he's a paler version of the ones that you've already taken. Uh, <laughs> more of a lieutenant than a general. And be honest, if Jay McInerney was Russian, you'd have taken him fifth. <laughs> and he's not even in my top one hundred. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't take Hemingway, but I guess you have one last. Book. I have one left. Uh, I did not take Hemingway. When I go through my honorable mentions, I think it's. Uh-huh. I think we'll have to say America is deeper, even if it's, uh, even if it's not the at least, at least for wow. an English reader, I guess. But I have Doctor Shivago on my bench. <laughs> so I don't know. Okay, so I'll take my number fifth pick and this again kind of shows a weakness in your army i'm taking tony morrison and Mm. it shows you really can't compete with the five that i've put together here she's as good as it gets (laughs) she's much more relevant than turgenev or the others that you have on your list multiculturalism of america wins the day it's she Uh you know we've got james baldwin and wright and langston hughes and zora neale hurston and Sandra Cisneros and Maya Angelou, Maxine Hong Kingston. There's a Ralph Ellison. There's, you know, you've got, you've got what? All uh, mostly (laughs) novelists, all Mm -hmm. 19th century. Every one of them that you've taken was from the 19th century. There's a bit of a distinction, but there's nothing. I run the gamut here from you know, Melville to Toni Morrison, that's a pretty wide sweep that I've got. Or Emily Dickinson to Toni Morrison, that's a pretty wide sweep. Uh, yours is is kind of kind of set in their ways, a little bit cramped and crowded, your field. We're and, time travelers. So, <laughs> and fighting unit from the 19th century. When I go through the people that I didn't <laughs> even need to bring out, Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, he's like... He'd be the perfect soldier. He'd be the one that he, you look at him and he's wearing the wrong uniform or, or something. And then the battle begins and he goes screaming out into the middle of it, pell-mell like a berserker. Uh, Mark Twain, Hawthorne, Faulkner, Hemingway, and Fitzgerald. I didn't even need them. Salinger, Updike, Roth, Ozick, Steinbeck, Henry James, Edith Wharton, Walt Whitman, Sylvia Plath, Jack London, James Thurber, Thoreau. Vonnegut, Emerson, Kerouac, Ginsburg, Heller, Dreiser, Stowe, Pound, Elliot, Raymond Carver, and then contemporaries, we didn't even need to tap into them, Colson Whitehead, George Saunders, Paul Auster, Lydia Davis. You know, America had a pretty good 19th century, a pretty good 20th century. Maybe they didn't have, you know, the Mount Everest of uh, of Tolstoy, but uh, there's a lot of mountains in that range. Theodore Dreiser. <laughs> well, you know, you know, he's got I mean, some fans. I threw him in. Did I say Pound and Elliot? They're uh... <laughs> here's here's the thing. You know, the, it comes down to do you want to reread books that will change your life. Mm. You want to read books in passing and barely remember anything. Yeah. Well, what books have changed your life? <laughs> Just off the top of your head. 
<laughs> um, Raymond Carver. Yeah. Okay. American. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, it probably goes to show that um, maybe we should do the next war with time periods. Ooh, I was thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. 19th like, versus 20th century. Or, yeah. Because yeah. I, I think that like the Renaissance, mm-hmm. era, you know, versus the America in the eighties. Yeah. Mean, right. Like, or maybe not the eighties, scratch that the sixties, you know? Yeah. That would be interesting. <laughs> uh, especially if we can figure out, you know, there was some uh, potential war here. So we've, we've had a couple of good ones, England versus France. Yeah. And now I the mean, cold we, war. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we could do Germany versus Italy. Mm. That'd be interesting. Yeah. That would be. Or uh, the Civil War, people have asked us to do North versus South. Oh, yeah. Kind of interesting. So we'll uh, we'll figure one out. But uh, until then, uh, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Hey, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Mike for stopping by with his juggernaut of an army. Come on. <laughs> when you're able to legitimately take Chekhov third on your list, that's crushing. But I still think my plucky little team did okay. Don't count out Emily Dickinson, people. She's smart as hell and as tough as nails. What did we hear recently from a supporter of the president? Of the president's spokesperson. He's as smart as a tack. <laughs> as smart as a tack. Not as sharp. As smart as a tack. Very smart, those tacks. They're well known for their intelligence. Once I saw some tacks on Jeopardy, the game show, and they cleaned up. Answer after answer. They pushed the button with their little point and gave correct answer after correct answer. Well, I should say question after question on that show, right? But that was the only problem. Those tacks only gave answers. They didn't care about winning. They didn't care about the money. They were just there to show off. So Alex would say, Bismarck is the capital of this state, and the tech would say, North Dakota. And Alex would say, no, you have to ask a question. And they would say, okay, why are you so annoying? Those tacks, brutal things, smart as hell but not as nice as they could be. Speaking of which, I hope you are as nice as you can be. Isn't that our goal? Isn't that the best way to spend our precious hours with our precious fellow humans and precious beloved pets? I think so. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.